The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Sometimes you get an up-close position to watch because you're riding the pine big time. And sometimes you feel that disparity. You know, you've got the varsity and then you've got the JV, the A team and the B team, those who dress and those who don't. And I used to tell people when I played football my senior year in high school that I was second string. And I've kind of thought about that since then. In reality, I was probably fifth string. <laughs> But who wants to say you're fifth string, you know? But there was one time where I was really thankful that I was riding the pine. I can still remember, because you know, when you play football, you get to right on the field. And there was a Division I linebacker that was being recruited by the University of Maryland. And we had a running back by the name of Billy. And Billy wasn't one of our bigger running backs, maybe 150 pounds with his pads on. And he was doing a sweep left over by the sidelines. And it was like a car accident. He was hit so unbelievably hard that the sound was just unbelievable. And it just, it just, it just squished him to pieces. And the ball just squirted out. And Billy never ran the same after, after that hit. And I remember vividly being on the sideline thinking, thank you, God. <laughs> that I am not on the field to be hit by a 220-pound linebacker like that. Well, maybe you're on the sidelines because you've been hit in ministry and you've been hurt. And you're like, I just want to be on the sidelines. But maybe you're on the sidelines and you'd really like to be in the game. But you're feeling this dichotomy of There are the haves and the have-nots, and you're feeling like a have-not. That was what was going on in the church of Corinth, was there were those that were the in-crowd. They had the supernatural gifts. They were the cool people. They could speak in tongues. And then for the rest of you, well, there's coach. They're first class, and the rest, well, shut the curtain. You're in the back of the bus. And so... There were some that, that had the Spirit of God, the, the spiritual gifts, and then others, well, we're really not so sure whether you even really have the Spirit of God or not. And so there was this overemphasis um, over on those that had certain gifts. And as a result, Paul is addressing a problem to the church at Corinth. And he says, now, concerning spiritual gifts or spiritual people, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of, of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. 
To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Let's pray. Father, help us to be lovers of the word, not lovers of pleasure, that we would love your church and what you're doing in this world. And may we not sit on the sidelines thinking it doesn't involve us and pray that our gifts would be used for the common good of the body. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what was the problem going on here? You know, Paul is, is, he begins certain addresses throughout Corinthians with now concerning. And those are different headers as he's responding to a letter that was first written to him. And so he's addressing these spiritual gifts or spiritual persons as he's ultimately what he's addressing is, is chaos that was taking place in the worship service where tongue speaking was on display and apparently it was getting quite noisy in the worship service as people were talking over one another and the tongue speaking was being done without an interpretation. And so the body as a whole wasn't benefited or being edified by this tongue, speak, tongue speaking. And so Paul is addressing this lack of understanding regarding the spiritual gifts. And it is possible that Paul is addressing the Corinthians that were, they were manifesting some types of signs and wonders uh, even before they were believers. You see, he says, he reminds them, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols however you were led. And the idea here is you were given to these ecstatic experiences and you were being led and of stuff and Paul's saying, I'm not even really sure, you know, however you were led. And the idea here is that just because you're speaking in tongues doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit gave you the tongue. You see, he's concerned about that. It kind of begs the question, what's Paul referring to? And we're not really sure, but verse 3 might be part of the answer. He says, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a t difficult passage, but some people think that what was going on is there were these people speaking gibberish, and some, even in a tongue, would be speaking, and they were saying, Jesus is cursed. Jesus is accursed. But, and yet it was gibberish, and then one who could interpret the tongue realized, wait a minute, this is a false spirit that's even being, that's coming out of their mouths. Um, and so to say the other, the, so he gives this kind of, Paul gives this foolproof test, and his test is in verse 3. And the test is to discern the Spirit, whether this Spirit is from God or not. It's a foolproof test. It's twofold. If you have the Spirit of God, then you can't say Jesus is accursed. And if you do say Jesus is Lord, you could only say that if you were born from above, born again, and have the Holy Spirit 
prompting you to say that. So to say that Jesus is cursed or Jesus is anathema is to say, cast out Jesus. It's a rejection of him. And what we're saying is, and we do say that Jesus became a curse or was a curse, but to say that Jesus is accursed is to say that Jesus' life and mission is in vain and he didn't accomplish what he promised that he said he was going to accomplish and that his sacrifice wasn't accepted by God the Father. So ultimately we would be speaking blasphemy if we were to say that. And so what we do mean is that Jesus became a curse for us. He stood in our place, died the death we should have died. But if Jesus is a curse, then that's the end of the story. There's no hope for you and me because our only hope is to be in Christ. And if Christ has been cast out of heaven and not allowed back, then how could Jesus bring us into the presence of God? You see, the Bible makes clear Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. We know that God accepted the sacrifice. It's a sweet-smelling aroma that appeased the wrath of God and that God raised him from the dead. And Jesus has ascended into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of, Father, of the Father. And the Bible actually says that we have now died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so if we say he's accursed, then we're speaking blasphemy. Um, and so the idea here would be to say that Jesus is being cast off. Now, apparently some of these tongue speakers or, or so-called uh, spiritual men uh, could be saying this. I, true story, a friend of mine in college, uh, he went through two cults before he ever became a Christian. Some of you guys have heard me talk about Volpe before. Well, his journey began in high school and the Gideons came and just handing out Bibles. And he was not a believer, didn't go to church, but he couldn't believe that all these people were throwing the Bibles on the ground and throwing them in the trash can. And so he's not a believer, yet he had this regard that this, this is a holy book and it shouldn't be trampled on. And so he began to pick up these New Testament Gideon Bibles and he, and he brought brought one home and saved a bunch of them, but he, he would write prayers in the Bible. Jesus, if you're for real, would you please reveal yourself to me? Well, he went through a few cults before he became a Christian. What I mean by a cult is one of them, they didn't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe that Jesus was God. And they believed a lot of false doctrines and ultimately they were, ultimately they were pumping out a works-based religion that you get to God based on your performance. And, but one of those cults, they brought him up front and said, before you can join this, this cult, you have to speak in tongues. And he was scared like, I can't do that. Well, he got up there and he said, Charlie, I couldn't control my tongue. And he just began to speak in tongues in a way that was uncontrollable. And it scared the stuffing out of him because it wasn't from the Holy Spirit, but he was speaking in tongues. Well, I think that's what Paul is alluding to here is that some are speaking and they're speaking this gibberish and some are saying Jesus is accursed. Well, I would say for us that when the Spirit of God, as this foolproof test of verse three, when the Spirit of God 
begins his work in us, one of the first things he begins to clean up is our language. Is it not? And so, and, and particularly in swearing the JC or the GD word. Isn't that practically close to the same thing as saying Jesus is accursed? You see, the Spirit changes that. And on the flip side, what he begins to bring out of us is we start to testify and to proclaim and go public with our faith and say, Jesus is Lord. And what Paul's saying is you can only do that by the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, first of all, in Romans 10, the Bible says this is how we are saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now there's two interesting things to point out about that. The first is, for you to go public and to say, Jesus is Lord. It's a Roman culture, and what did Roman culture, everybody said what? Caesar is Lord. So for you to go public and say, Jesus is Lord, is to say, Caesar is not Lord. And that instantly opens you up to what? Persecution. You are a fish swimming in a massive wrong direction. And so to confess Jesus is Lord was an insult to the Roman government, and it was considered blasphemy. Yet for Christians who now were born again by the Holy Spirit, they believed to say Caesar is Lord was blasphemy. So somebody is speaking blasphemy. Talk about kingdoms in conflict. Well, the power of the sword wasn't given to the church, but given to the government. And so to go public with Jesus' Lord confession and to be baptized and go public was to invite yourself to the persecution of the Roman government. And so you can see why Paul is saying, it's only by the power of the Spirit who gives you a spirit, not of fear, that you're going to go public and say, welcome persecution, here I come, I've cast my lot with Jesus. Only the Holy Spirit working and changing a heart would give someone the courage and the conviction to say, I'm going to go the wrong direction of this world. And this isn't going to be my best life now. And for many of them, they were thrown to the lions and discarded. May we not be afraid to publicly confess Jesus is Lord. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is Revelation 19 still true? It is. Revelation 19 says, I saw heaven and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and his head is many diadems and his name has a name written that no one knows but himself and he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the, the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is that the Jesus you worship? Is he that big to you? 
He's a big Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So to say Jesus is Lord is to say what is true. Now, the other astounding confession to say Jesus is Lord, if you were a good Jew, you knew your Bible, and you knew your Bible, which was which would have ended in Malachi, which would be what we would call the Old Testament. And they knew Joel 2.32, and that verse says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. They didn't have Romans 10.13 yet. They had Joel 2.32. Everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. And Paul comes along and says that by the Spirit you say Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is Lord. It's a confession that Jesus is Jehovah. You see, Jehovah and Yahweh, same word in Hebrew, just pronounced differently. And so when the Jehovah Witnesses come knocking on my door, I try to convince them, I want you to become a Jehovah Witness, that Jesus is Jehovah. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And some people say, well, I wonder, where is the Trinity in the Bible? I never, I don't really see it. One of the clearest places of the Trinity in the Bible is right here, which we just read. Did you see it? Did it not jump out to you in verses 4 and 5? He's getting at the one and the many and the, and the diversity and the unity. And the diversity is a, three times he talks about a variety, variety of gifts, variety of service, variety of activities. That's diversity, but there's unity. And the diversity and the unity is same Spirit, same Lord, same God, Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, God the Father, that's the unity. We've got diversity, but we've got unity. And the unity is in the Godhead. It's one of the clearest passages in the Bible of the Trinity. Jesus is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. And you see the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in this passage. The Holy Spirit gives the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit causes us to cry out, Jesus is Lord, it's because we are born again. And we are born again and then we are placed and baptized, placed into the church. Into the church, And each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We are all given at least one spiritual gift, one Holy Spirit gift. When you become a believer, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And the gift is, is empowered by the Holy Spirit who empowers them all and everyone. This is God's power at work in us. So there isn't a varsity and a JV. Those who dress and those who don't, and these are supernatural gifts and these are natural gifts. They're all Holy Spirit gifts. The Bible doesn't make that kind of distinctions that this is not of, of, of the Spirit and this is. They're all of the Spirit. And then we see not only is it God's power at work in us, verse 6, but in verse 11, we see that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, apportions to each one individually as he wills. We didn't get to pick. We didn't get to pick, did we? There wasn't like, you know, a smorgasbord. You know, this wasn't like, you know, the buffet. You go down the line. Oh, I think I'll take faith. I'll take a little bit of mercy. I'll take a little bit of tongues. And you get to, you know, kind of pick your, your gift. 
Does the Bible say that's how it works? Did we, did we have a choice on this? Did we get to have a conversation? Did we cast lots? Did we draw straws? The very gift that God has given to you for the common good of the local body, the church, was sovereignly appointed in, to you by the Holy Spirit as he wills, determines, planned, or intended. And we could say before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit is absolutely sovereign. And so if you have confessed Jesus is Lord, you have been born again by his spirit, and God hasn't given you a, a gift randomly, willy-nilly. He didn't just like drop leaflets down from heaven, and you were trying to catch these different leaves as they're coming down, and oh, I just happened to, to catch the mercy gift, you know, as it came down. It doesn't work like that. You see, the Holy Spirit intended for you to have the gift that you have, just as you look in the mirror and you see green eyes, blue eyes, brown eyes. God made you male or female, and he gave you an ethnicity, and I wholeheartedly believe that in the new heavens and new earth, if you've got green eyes, you're gonna have green eyes when you're back here in paradise with a renewed heaven and earth. And if you're, if you're Latino, you're gonna be Latino. And if you're African-American, you're gonna be African-American. And if you're a male, you're gonna be a male. And if you're female, you're gonna be a female. That's how God made you. And the gift that he's given to you is not gonna change either. That's how he made you. My point is, is a lot of times there's, you know, we, we live in this social media age of what, what was referred to by this lady who wrote the book Happiness Effect, where everybody's trying to always portray on social media that they're always happy. And she refers to it as the CNN of envy. And we live in this culture of envy. And we always envy someone who seems to have a better gift than us but they teach better than I do. They, they speak better, they, they sing better. Boy, you should have heard my solo this week <laughs> at, at the funeral, you know. I told my kids that I, I sang like never before because I was singing out loud at this, uh, Jeff was singing with me, but boy, it was, it was not very good, was it, Jeff? That's not my gift. So you say, yeah, it's true. <laughs> my kids asked me, well, did anybody compliment you after singing? And I said, no. And my other daughter said, that's because they've been taught to say, if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything nice at all. That's not my gift. Now, and that's okay. We have to all accept what we have and what we don't have and to rejoice in that. And why has God given us a gift? He's given it for the common good. It's not for ourselves. And so it's interesting how this particular list of gifts, and we'll get into some of these particular sign gifts when we get to chapter 14. We'll, we'll delve into some of these things more in particular. But with these spiritual gifts, it's not an exhaustive list. We have more gifts that are listed in Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. But we're told that God gave the gifts for the common good or the collective whole, not for your individual whole. And Ephesians 4 says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ according to the, to the Bible. Then who does the work of ministry? Who builds up the body of Christ? 
The pastor and teacher's job is to equip the saints, not to entertain the saints, but we're to equip the saints to do the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So who does the ministry? The body does. And so the, the different gifts, now here's where I'm kind of going with this, is that these different gifts that God gifts, gives, gifts of administration, gifts of encouragement, gifts of health, gifts of serving, and these other gifts that are mentioned, some of these gifts go way beyond the worship service itself into the whole life of the body. And where I'm trying to go with this is that there's an interesting shrinking, as we apply this to our culture, there's an interesting shrinking of margins. And we tend to use our gifts right here in the local facility and we come and we're in the worship service and that tends to be it because there's another area of margin that's getting sucked away from us and that's the issue of lots of different things but the smartphone has taken up a whole new dimension of life that it's now taking twice as long as it used to take to complete an assignment because we have to text everybody back and check our status on Facebook and do a little dribble here or there and check other things and things are taking longer and so what's happened is there's a shrinking down of opportunities to use our gifts. And here's where I'm going with this, is that many of these gifts, they don't take place in the worship service. So if you're to give yourself to the community of faith for the common good and the building up of the body, much of that's not gonna take place during this hour of worship. I didn't see also in Paul's list of gifts, I didn't see posting, tweeting, or trolling. I haven't found those yet. But I do know that the Apostle John said in 3 John, I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. So John was wrestling this when it would take a few months for a piece of mail to get from one person to another. And he's saying, I'd rather not write with pen and ink because I want to talk to you face to face. And the internet feeds on convenience and it's breeding a subtle form of laziness. Because there's an exertion required to call somebody rather than texting them. And it's more work to meet up with somebody than to exchange an email back and forth. Yet the Apostle John preferred face to face. And in the using of our gifts, they're going to be much more effective in the real world than the virtual world, is what I'm getting at. I am amazed to see Christians sometimes debating an issue online. And they're, they're spilling it out right online. And they don't even talk to each other face to face. They don't even pick up the phone. Because that, that's that's, they're too lazy for that. That would take work. And they'd probably see each other face to face. And they wouldn't even think to talk about some issue that they just spilled their laundry right out before the whole world about this or that. And it's like, really? And I'm guilty of that myself. I've, enga I've engaged in stuff that I've regretted. But I try to pick, my, pick and choose the battles. Here's my point. As the internet and the social media, and we're gonna talk a lot about this this year, is taking up our margins of time. That many of our gifts aren't being used because our margins are shrinking. And so in the context of relationships with one another and Paul's concern that he's given these gifts for the common good, how can they be used in the common good of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church? 
They are best used and nurtured through face-to-face interaction and not online. They're, They're used when we practice hospitality, when we intentionally carve out time to meet people for breakfast or for lunch or for coffee or to meet them in our homes and to open up our homes and practice hospitality. We have to rearrange the furniture of our lives to get rid of the clutter that's ultimately shrinking our souls and sometimes feeding selfishness and often breeding envy and discontent. So in the book, The Happiness Effect, it's interesting that Frida... She does all these interviews, and she goes to 13 different colleges, interviews around 1,000 people, and she says the young people loathe the 24-7 nature of social media and smartphones, yet they can't get away from it. There seems to be an inevitability to social media that they cannot escape. Sounds kind of like you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And many of the students were able to articulate thoughtful critiques of the way that they and their fellow students use social media, yet despite the thoughtful examination, they still fell prey to this happiness effect. They still felt the pressure to project an image of happiness and success, when in reality, that's not what they're really feeling. So a healthy way to unplug to have a Sabbath from the phone is to dive into the means of grace and into the church by using your gifts. Now, interesting, there's a book that's been come out called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. And this guy Reinke, I think is how you say his last name, one of his interesting observations in the book of how your phone is changing you, he says the smartphone is causing a social reversal. Here it is. The desire to be alone in public and never alone in seclusion. You were made to go public to be all there with public people. And when you're in seclusion and alone, to actually be alone. But the smartphone has introduced something different. Now we're public, but we're, we're actually disengaged because we're plugged in or we're engaged with our phone, and then when we're alone, we're never really alone because we're always trying to reach out to, and it's causing a shrinking of margins. Jesus said, to whom much is given what? Much is required. Jesus rewarded those who multiplied their talents in the parable of the talent, but the one who buried his talent, his talent was taken from him. So you have been given a gift, and you may not know what the gift is, and sometimes trial and error and through opportunities and through ability and desire and working with the body of Christ, you start to discern what you're good at and what you're not good at. I mean, I had the ability to sing, I just didn't have the affirmation of the body that that was really your gift, and that's okay. And you may discover that same thing as well with different gifts as well, but we have a choice to make with our lives, with this decade, with this year, with this month, with this week, with this day with this hour. It's always the same choice, and the choice is this. Whatever one sows, that he also reaps. For if you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap corruption. If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. So Paul says, let's not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And aren't we thankful 
as we come to the Lord's table, Jesus didn't blog. He didn't send us a tweet. He didn't send us an email. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took time to enter time. He spent his first nine months in utero. Just think about that for a minute. That's unfathomable. And to think we're in such a hurry. He's nine months in Mary's womb. As we come to the table this morning, let's be renewed in our zeal for the church, which he purchased with his own blood. And give yourself to him and to one another. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us. We easily get caught up in the speed of the internet, the speed of our high-paced culture, the entertainment thrills, and things that ultimately erode our souls from deep fellowship with you and with one another. And as we enter this new year, Lord, help us to slow down. Help us to truly grow in our love for the church, discovering the gifts that you've given to us and laying down our lives and serving others as you have served us. Thank you for this privilege to come to the table. Meet us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.